Hyper Wellbeing, a podcast about the startups, technologies, and people driving a brand new healthcare industry. Healthcare for healthy people. Consumer and data-driven, emerging as devices, apps, mobile, biology, health, and wellness converge. Continuous prediction, prevention, and optimization paradigm. And now, over to your host, D.S. Dreibra. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast. On today's show, we have Ivor Cummins. Ivor is a top-class engineer with over 25 years' experience. His speciality is leading teams in complex problem-solving efforts. Over the past six years, Ivor has applied his technical expertise to decoding the causes of human chronic disease and obesity. He has analyzed countless scientific publications from the past century, creating a strategy to achieve human health, weight loss, and longevity. Ivor speaks at conferences and conducts seminars around the world to provide actionable plans for preventing and healing chronic disease. In 2018, he published, along with Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, Eat Rich, Live Strong, Mastering the Low-Carb and Keto Spectrum for Weight Loss and Longevity. The book and much of Ivor's other work is supported by Dave Bobbitt and Irish Heart Disease Awareness. Hello, Ivor. Hello, Lee. It's great to be here. Much appreciated. That sounds a more local accent to what I'm used to. So where are you just now? I'm in Dublin, Ireland in my little office. Um, <laughs> Sunny Dublin. Well, at least it's not raining today, particularly. It's good to hear a voice that sounds more uh, homely for me. I think I've lost a, a lot of my accent. What do you think? Uh, I, it's still there to me, but maybe it's less strong than it would have been in the past, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Anyway, I'll, uh, I've got so much to cover with you, and I know your time is quite tight, so I better start dancing around some, some topics I want to uh, cover with you. So first of all, I would like to start with the fact that you've came from outside of medicine and outside uh, medical practice, and you, you've came from engineering. And if you could describe uh, where you've came from in terms of uh, discipline and why you ended up in this space, please. So long story short, I got some blood tests in 2012 routine, and two or three readings were really high. And I quizzed the doctor uh, about these because I saw the readings and realized I was way outside the normal distribution, way up in the tail. And I didn't get satisfactory answers to two key questions in any potential problem. A, what is what are the implications for serious issues due to these high readings, the morbidity or mortality down the road? And B, what root causes in humans would cause these high readings? So things I can fix to resolve the issue. And I got very woolly answers. So after going to two more doctors, including a very senior person, uh, and still not getting answers, I realized, wow, this is like my work world. When I'm brought into a team and they don't have the answers or any clarity, there's only one path forward. Go to the raw data. And that's exactly what I did. I went uh, to ResearchGate and got a logon through my corporation, uh, PubMed, and I basically pursued these three blood tests and I studied deeply all of the biochemistry and metabolic science around them. 
And within a matter of weeks of obsessive study, I essentially had my answer that excessive carbohydrate in my diet was a primary root cause. And when I took out most of the carbohydrate in a knife edge switch, within six to eight weeks, I lost over 30 pounds in weight and my bloods essentially all resolved. And in fact, all the other bloods became much better too. So I had crisply demonstrated a root cause intervention with crisp, dramatic, positive results. And then I went on to study for the following many years, and I built up a network around the world of professors, doctors, researchers, uh, and eventually published my book, and, and, and I keep going. Hey, well, well done, Ivor. We have a little bit of a similar story. I'll maybe relate some today, maybe not, and do it in a future show. We'll see. Which readings were high? Cholesterol, uh, not massively high, but pretty high, around 6.6 millimole, which would be around 270 milligrams. The other one that was really high was GGT, which is a liver enzyme, gamma glutamyl transferase. And I soon discovered that that was a serious risk marker, much more important than cholesterol. And my serum ferritin, the iron loading in the blood, was extremely high also. And after getting a test for hemochromatosis, which was negative, uh, I realized with research that it was also an amazing marker for metabolic syndrome. And it indicated inflammatory processes in the body. And it was a major risk factor for future heart disease and all-cause mortality. Were you a little bit shocked that the doctor couldn't help you very much? I was actually quite shocked, especially as I researched and found the answers. It, it amazed me that these standard blood tests were not on the tip of their tongue, as in, you got a high ferritin, well, that can be hemochromatosis, but it can also be an, an extremely good inflammatory marker, and it could relate to dietary uh, issues uh, and metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance syndrome. And likewise, GGT, they mentioned maybe you're drinking too much wine. Because the doctors all understand GGT as a marker of excessive alcohol intake, which in fairness it is, but they're missing the elephant in the room. GGT is a massive marker for excessive carbohydrate sugars in the diet and being on the path to type 2 diabetes, independent of alcohol. In fact, GGT is much more important, I would say, in the latter um, area than in the generic alcohol marker area. We're maybe jumping a little ahead. In fact, we are. But I have to ask about Aston Alt in that picture of the liver. Yeah, AST and ALT are, are also can be indicators of liver inflammatory issues and uh, ALKFOS as well for alcohol, excessive use. And they can be a little more specific to issues. GGT is a very general marker and that's one of the reasons they're not crazy about GGT. Even though I find it more useful, it doesn't give a very specific indication as to what's wrong besides alcohol. Whereas the reality is GGT is just an excellent marker, full stop. It's a bit like it's a bit like HSCRP, and it's not very specific, but I still find it a very useful marker for people who wish to be proactive, whereas doctors tend not to like CRP, let alone, well, they certainly don't like HSCRP. 
as a general inflammatory marker because it doesn't tell them specifically what's wrong. So they can't, they don't think they can do something with a patient. Exactly. And it speaks to one of the problems in modern medicine. Uh, if that for me in engineering, the best marker with the most impact is the most important measurement. Uh, it's your job to find out why the marker is high. But I think modern medicine leans very heavily towards wanting a specific marker that indicates which medication may be needed. Uh, and that's a weakness. The expert problem solver needs the best markers. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're very specific. That's the job of the problem solver to dig deep. We're, we're certainly in agreement. You know, I come from a computer science and electrical engineering background. And I liked HSCRP because, hey, if I consider it high, and actually for most will say high is above one, but for me, it's, uh, I would say it's anything close to one. And so when I got mine done, it was 0.9. And then I was quite happy to see 0.9 because I'm like, hey, look, I don't think something is as perfect as it could be. So I've got subclinical uh, inflammation. And so now I have the opportunity to investigate myself instead of leaving it there for decades and something could be brewing. So I took a guess. I went to the dentist, got an x-ray, and it was actually subclinical inflammation in my gum. I got an operation, like they drilled into the gums, they physically removed inflammation. I retested HSCRP, and it dropped to 0.4. You, you pursued the path of finding out why, and you were successful. For a modern doctor, there's no way they're going to have the bandwidth, or in many cases, maybe the, the expertise to really do that. So this is where prevention has to get way better. But people need to take accountability and responsibility for their own preventative health and, and can't just depend on a system that will just throw some meds at the problem. Uh, often that will be a very weak intervention, uh, whereas there are far more powerful ones that address the root cause of the problem. Interestingly, with GGT, I'm always getting new data. And here's a great example, a bit like yours. So I had a guy who came to me asking about GGT. He'd gone low carb and he'd done everything. And he was still extremely high. And the doctor kept saying to him, are you sure you're not drinking? And he was very annoyed because he didn't really drink any alcohol. So he pursued it and pursued it. And eventually he discovered that he had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So his high GGT for over two decades was actually mostly due to that inflammatory problem. And when he got a very strong targeted antibiotic to resolve his issue, his GGT for the first time in 20 years dropped down from super high down to normal range. Now, that's a really special cause, very, very unusual. But this guy found it, and it would have had implications for his health if he had not. We're maybe jumping into functional uh, medicine here talking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But let me run with it for a moment. There's been a couple people around me recently where I thought, hey, you've got SIBO. And, you know, the doctors hadn't identified it. So I ordered a test. You know, it's a two-hour test. You blow in the test tubes five times, send them back in the post to measure the, the gases that came out your gut. And both the people who I thought had SIBO did have SIBO. And just to prove to them, hey, we're all not coming back positive, I also paid, and it's a little bit expensive, and I didn't come back with SIBO. 
So SIBO is an interesting one. And are you aware of the link between SIBO and uh, glucose, as in uh, SIBO can also contribute to higher blood sugars? I, I really feel it's what you eat over your life that leads to a healthy or an unhealthy microbiome. Yeah, and it's also uh, certain agents like antibacterial agents and exposures when young and, you know, basically not eating dirt. But we're jumping into functional medicine here and uh, I've got some other plans to fit this podcast. So I understand your um, background is is engineering and I you're taking a you've ta- you've came in from outside and taken an, engin- an engineering approach instead of a medical practice approach just to make clear you don't have a commercial interest here that you're you're actually sponsored no commercial interest whatsoever we myself and Dr Jeffrey Gerber released the book Eat Rich Live Long which goes through kind of everything I would say uh, in March this year but to be honest any margins on that don't go within a mile of covering my travel expenses but I am funded and I work on behalf of Irish Heart Disease Awareness, www.ihda.ie, and David Bobbitt, who founded that charity. And there is no profit interest whatsoever related to the charity. Uh, it's all to get information out on the calcification scan to save middle risk people from heart attacks. And there's four million invested so far by David and the charity and zero return. So and that will continue to be the case. I understood David to be um, a wealthy Irish individual who got very angry and he had very good reason for getting very angry with the current healthcare. Could you explain why he was very angry? Well, his story is like an extreme a super extreme version of mine, I only had bad risk markers that were not highlighted and understood properly. And I got angry, would you believe? Uh, Very angry. But David was far more extreme. So he was very health focused. He had six children. He owns and runs a $700 million business, one of Ireland's largest Irish corporations, and very health focused, running four times a week on average, super slim, super fit, executive medicals regularly. And he was always told that he was bulletproof, top 10% fitness for his age, uh, really low risk of a heart attack, uh, bulletproof, his doctors said. And then he got, by coincidence, a calcium scan in the US, which is one of the most amazing measures of your current atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, And indeed, your risk for all-cause mortality, not just heart attacks. And this test showed him he had a 906 score, which meant he was in the worst 1% of heart disease for his age. So his framing him risk score from the blood tests was around 5%, which is great. And the calcification scan, the CAC score, actually said, no, you're at maybe 50% or more chance in the next 10 years of a heart attack or death. That obviously really made him angry, and he began to research it himself. And then a while later, he discovered that he was actually type 2 diabetic in a major way. And they had missed that also with the standard blood tests because they never took a postprandial glucose, post-meal glucose, insulin, any of that stuff. 
So he realized that the disease deriving his heart attack risk, as in diabetes primarily, they'd missed that as well. And in his investigations, he just realized, my God, the medical system could never survive in my business. They are missing some of the most important measures in the world. They don't even know about them in many cases. And they're proceeding ahead with these generic risk factor algorithms. And they think that's good enough when people's lives are involved. No way. So he said, I'm going to change this. Uh, And that's the journey he's been on. I love it when rich, intelligent people get angry over. (laughs) As, As do I. This is a case where where David has made an absolute commitment to change this on behalf of all the middle risk, particularly middle risk, non-obese, non-smokers, the hundreds of millions of people out there who who think they're probably okay, you know, but they're thin outside, fat inside. They have visceral adipose tissue building. They have diabetic dysfunction and their doctors get a shock when at 52 with three children, they die and they say, oh, it must be genetics. Well, no, you could have found out a decade before and prevented And you could have found out for $100 in five minutes. In most cases. Now, there will be rare cases where a low score, you could still have an event, but they're rare. And in engineering, you go after the big prize. The vast majority of people would be flagged with significant dangerous heart disease with a calcium scan, the vast majority. We, so a high score. Jumped us head to calcium scoring, but let me just ask, just clarify for now. David had a CAC score that showed a 75% chance of a heart attack, even though he had been through 15 executive medicals very successfully. Yeah, the calcium score will show all of the middle risk And even in his case, apparently low-risk patients, the calcium scan overwhelmingly will actually show whether they have disease or not. So it sees the disease process directly. It's not a proxy or an indirect guess using blood tests. And there's a huge distinction, obviously. I can't help but jump in and instead of moving ahead, ask about what's typically used today, which is, <laughs> it's hard not to laugh over, the Framingham questions. So can you just describe what healthcare is doing today to assess risk in terms of cardiovascular in particular? Yeah, Lee, well, it's kind of bizarre to an engineer, but there you go. Uh, so the they've got a few different risk calculators and they're trying to make them a bit better, but the classic Framingham is still used. And You've got, have you, do you smoke? Um, Do you have high cholesterol? And a couple of different measures used there. Um, Male or female age. And there's a few different questions which are based around risk factors that loosely tie to cardiovascular risk. But of course, in in huge amounts of cases, the blood risk, Uh, measures and the risk factors don't really line up with the actual level of disease because they're only guesses but the calcium scan goes in in five minutes as you say and it actually sees the calcification that is the result of disease calcification only arises in diseased vessels it is only there if you've got the disease and the more calcium the more disease so it just tells you the level of disease and bypasses all the risk factors. 
And the, the really frightening thing is the largest group of people in the world are middle risk people. So we've got low risk people with excellent bloods who generally are, are probably okay. Not always, but generally. We've got high risk people with very bad bloods and they are generally heading for a very bad outcome. But the largest group in risk is perversely and bizarrely the middle risk people. And that's where most heart attacks actually occur. But the middle risk people are ambiguous. If you go in with a calcium scan on the middle risk people, papers show that you can move 60% of them into high or low risk based on the calcification scan. So you can actually put them in their proper box and act accordingly. But sadly, the calcification scan is rarely used, and that's something we're working to change. I should probably try and add some context to what you're saying there. And I think it's a case, and you can uh, let me know if I'm right, that a third of heart attacks, the first people know about it, it, well, they're actually dead from the first heart attack, a third of people. And cardiovascular disease is the greatest killer. So it's the greatest killer. And the first time a third of people know about it is at the point of death. That, that is the tragedy, exactly. Other diseases, they generally are diagnosed before you die. Cardiovascular disease is terrible because the first you get to know, as you say, is you're dead. And it's too late then. And they write it off and say, well, you know, that's not a patient anymore. They're gone. But for the individual, it really is frightening, especially when there's a scan there that in the overwhelming majority of cases could have told you in advance and given you a chance. And this process of atherosclerosis with a series of targeted nutritional interventions and maybe some medications could assist, you know, can be tackled. And and that's it's terrible that the people don't get the chance or the choice to find out and do something. Instead, they've got these fuzzy risk factors to guess whether they may or may not have a disease. Yeah, it's interesting. We're doing a, a lot of guessing, which leads me to try and get back on track with my questions, the preliminary questions, because we jumped to the deep end. Do you think that healthcare, the healthcare we have today, that is the existing industry, um, do you think it does a good job of prediction and prevention overall? Yeah, there's a reasonable um, job done because if you put together all of the blood risk factors on average in a population, when you put them in an algorithm, you do get a fair cut at who's more at risk. But at an individual level, it's an extremely weak approach because there are so many individuals who are badly served by it. So I think they're doing what they can with the way the system has evolved. And the way the system has evolved is we generally look at bloods because they're cheap and easy. At a population level, they're reasonably effective. You know, if well, if the doctor is very knowledgeable on all these bloods and what they mean. And the system just throws medications at the problem. So it's a simple system. Quick blood tests and throw the meds at the problem. Now, the meds have a place, but sadly now, people believe that they're a major intervention that will save them, and they therefore don't really investigate or pursue fixing the root causes of what drives the disease. It's an easy way out for everyone. 
But the medications have limited success. I mean, even the best trials, you know, you might have a 20% reduction in events. But those 20% of people who don't get an event on the day they would have been due it, they get it a little while later. And the effect on all-cause mortality is very limited from the data. So we've got a very weak system that kind of weakly predicts who needs treatment. And the treatment are only really medications that to an engineer are quite weak interventions. Whereas if you went with getting a proper scan and finding out your real level of disease, and then you start applying all of the real fixes, like lowered carb, sugars, processed food, magnesium, potassium, many, many other root causes that you can address, then you could get a massive benefit in the long term. The existing healthcare industry, you said elsewhere, booms if you don't prevent and you do procedures like stents and bypasses or prescribed drugs. And the, the business rewards avoiding the root cause and then patching up after events. So it's, it's a business model issue, right? That is one big challenge. That's not a conspiracy. It's just the way it is for many decades. There is so much money in interventional procedures, particularly in cardiology, that, yeah, no one is really driven to prevent All of the interventional cardiologists, the huge revenue and profits are in uh, patching up, as you say. So ironically, the profit motive goes the wrong way compared to real industry. Like in high volume manufacturing industry, you must fix root causes for issues. You, You cannot afford to patch up for customers' products. It's ridiculous. So they are driven to prevent the cause and enhance the quality of of what they're making. But in medical industry, generally, the profits and revenue are in procedures and fixes. So that does drive behaviors. Now, one exception is theoretically, there are profits in preventative drugs. So there is one wing of the medical industry that benefits from, quote, prevention. But we touched on that. A lot of people are getting medicated who do not really have disease. And the people who have disease getting medicated, it's not an amazingly effective intervention anyway. But just to acknowledge that there is one branch of medicine that profits from, quote, prevention. That's uh, an issue we can also uh, discuss. But I'll, I'll jump back to another question. So would you, would you agree that people are dying unnecessarily today? and uh, on in mass numbers and for the ones who are not dying there is a vast amount of unnecessary suffering i.e diabetes for example so in other words humanity is uh letting millions die unnecessarily and letting many more millions suffer chronic disease that's not that's entirely preventive yeah and the two points are true there are countless people the widowmaker movie which david got commissioned uh, shows around four million americans have died uh, of heart attacks that could have been prevented since the scan was invented and around the world i mean there's just countless more so yeah there are countless people who we could go in and find out they're at risk and apply proper root cause fixes and there's no question about that Then there's the, as you say, the morbidity and the misery. So diabetes type 2 is exploding. No one would argue with that. 
the predictions are always being upped in the upward vector. It's just completely out of control. And that whole disease drives most cardiovascular disease and death. It drives amputations, retinopathy, loss of sight, peripheral vascular disease, dreadful, dreadful kidney disease. Most kidney disease now is pretty much diabetes related. So you've got all these massive morbidities all around the world. And yeah, if you moved in with a few root cause fixes and made it clear to people, if you stop eating this and if you stop doing this, you'll be able to greatly improve your condition like Verta Health are doing and other groups with diabetes going to lower carb, healthy whole food diets. Uh, you, you could have a, a huge impact on the world's misery. But, but the problem really is that these fixes and these technologies to identify disease are being treated as somewhat unorthodox. Ironically, after 30 years of missing these fixes, the system is now instinctively pushing back against them at every turn. I mean, we saw the other day a massive media blast around the world based on a completely weak associational study with headlines saying low carb means you die younger. And it's complete junk science. But 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 this huge campaign in the last few days across the world is to tell people that lowering your carbohydrate might kill you. Now, these things don't happen by accident. This is pushback. And at the same time, we have fantastic science from many other groups showing that lowering carbohydrate can be hugely beneficial for people with the biggest disease in the world, type 2 diabetes. And, but look, we've got these headlines. Can I jump in just to clarify there? When you say lower carbohydrate, you're not meaning lower the volume of plant-based foods you're eating. You're meaning something else. You're meaning ultra-processed foods. Yeah, primarily removing breads and pastas and grain products, primarily. You know, ones that excite the gut hormones, GIP, and ones that lead or tend to lead to much higher complications and diabetes. It's not necessarily a plant food versus animal food, because you can lower your uh, available carbohydrate that exacerbates diabetes hugely, you can lower it with a very plant-based diet. You remove all the processed refined foods, remove all the vegetable oils, and you can have avocados and olives and lots of high healthy fat. You know, you can have a lot of fish without getting heavily into animal products, fatty fish, and you can eat unprocessed real food carbohydrates. You, you don't have to be just eating steaks. And there's even an argument and some data that people who have diabetic dysfunction, like David, for instance, is an example, that eating suddenly very high protein, high fat animal products may not be ideal with some certain people with a damaged metabolism, like APOE4 genotype people who have developed diabetes. It may have been that 30 years ago, before they developed disease, they could have thrived on uncertain um, foods. But there's some evidence that now some people may be a little sensitive. So this is not an anti-plant-based diet thing really anymore. This is a lowered carb thing primarily. A lowered processed food. 
Oh, certainly lowered processed food is I an just want to be clear given. because I see a lot of value in plant-based eating or eating more plants and certainly at different stages of life. Or for example, if you've already had a heart event, then a plant-based diet is you, you said maybe more beneficial say than a ketogenic diet, or you may need more protein as you get older. If you've not had a heart event, you may want up your protein to uh, fight against uh, muscle loss, etc. So it just depends on where you are. And so when you say carbohydrate, you're not meaning eat less vegetables. No, lower carbohydrate does not mean less leafy greens and above ground leafy vegetables. Absolutely. The first, uh, I'm glad you said it, the first step is cut out the processed foods like breads and all these kind of refined, mechanically refined grains and starches that are super glucose and they excite the things you don't want to excite because diabetic people are an inherently carbohydrate intolerant so you need to go for whole plant foods that are in the low glycemic uh, arena and that, that's a given no processed foods uh, the processed foods also have vegetable oils industrial seed oils in them invariably and they will also cause many problems over the long term so the the highly processed ultra processed foods is the first step to health and the sugars eliminate those and then you've got this array of choices do i go for a a, a more plant-based diet that's very high in healthy fats and low carb like we described that's a choice or do i go for a, a more animal based diet and we evolved through the eating of animals that's accepted by paleo anthropologists that's a given and it can be very healthy but you need to look at your own uh, blood metrics and how much they improve with your chosen intervention. And, and that's, I think, important because like in engineering, if you put in a fix, there may be many different types of fixes you can choose. It should be a practical fix. It should be a lifestyle you enjoy, ideally. It should be effective. And there you need to measure your bloods over time and check that your intervention is is putting all of your blood metrics in the right direction and not backfiring. This is why I did uh, Ivor. I rotated diets for two years, and I was checking bloods at least every week, if not every day. Yes, and that's the way to do it. Now, unfortunately, the great masses of the middle risk, many of them will just want to know what to do and won't be so hot on this kind of self-experimentation. So I think all we can do is give them the data like we did it, myself and Dr. Gerber in Eat Rich, Live Long. We gave all the data and it's easy to read so people can just make their choices. Now, we do come down pretty heavily on, on a more low-carb ancestral diet, which does have animal products. But we also have a section explaining if your cholesterol jumps up really high on the, these types of diets, we explain how you can tweak the diet to bring it back down again because it's not right for us to say, regardless of where the science is, we don't know for sure. It's not right for us to say that risk factors might jump up, but we think they're okay. That's a personal decision for people. Uh, they're the ones who, if they have disease, are at high risk and they need to make their own decisions. So we allow and explain how you can bring your, your particle counts back down and, and how you can do more plant-based foods or, or other interventions if you're not comfortable because it is a personal decision. Ivor, let me 
use this as a launch pad to speak about chapter 10 of your book, which is called Most of Us Have Diabetes, which speaks of uh, insulin and longevity. At the start of that chapter, you um, paraphrase Fight Club and you say there are two rules of longevity club. The first rule of longevity club is respect your insulin. The second rule of longevity club is respect your insulin. Then you go on to state, there is no more important factor in weight loss and longevity than your insulin status, period. The single unifying factor among people who live to over 100 years of age is low insulin status. So what I'd like to ask you is, let's begin with your statement, most of us have diabetes. Can you explain that? It it sounds a bit shocking, I, I would imagine, to most. Yeah, and it does sound, uh, it sounds shocking, but the data is there, luckily. So essentially, diabetes and diabetic physiology is not where they put the bar. Currently, they put the bar with blood glucose at a very high level, but that's very late in a diabetic journey. So they've shown, I have countless papers, that 15 years before a diabetes diagnosis, things have been changing. And the much earlier test, the earliest laboratory test for diabetes is actually Joe Kraft's postprandial post-oral glucose tolerance insulin readings. So when your insulin begins to rise excessively after eating food, particularly carbohydrate, you're already essentially becoming an occult diabetic or a hidden diabetic. So currently they call diabetes you know, if you're over 6.5 blood glucose sustained or HbA1c is high, uh, but that's very late. So the full diabetics in the US are around 12, 13%. But the latest figures from the CDC show that around 64% of 45 years or older adults are pre-diabetic or diabetic. And the reality is from what I said a minute ago, Pre-diabetic are diabetic. They're just earlier on their journey. So nearly two-thirds of American adults over 45, and it's middle age and onwards where you've got to worry about death, are essentially diabetic. And myself and Dr. Gerber believe, and from his patients and, and other researchers in the field, that if you used insulin, the most sensitive, earliest laboratory diagnosis, it could be quite a bit higher. It could be 75%. That's essentially the phrase that most of us are diabetic um, is based on the data. Okay, so you're saying that 65% of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And that's and if you used more accurate testing, you think it would be a little bit higher. Exactly. But, but at the very basic bottom level, and we quoted a study in the book, over 50% of American adults generally have been shown to be pre-diabetic or diabetic. And if you look at 45 years or older, it goes up into the 60s. So that's absurd that most of your population, adult population, the majority, share a single metabolic disease. So the majority of Americans are sick and have a marker that they will be sicker is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. And one that uh, intimately links to future disease and death risk, of course, because it's 
Diabetes is essentially an accelerated model of aging. So the oxidative stress, the hyperinsulinemia, and the myriad other signaling issues in the body when you have diabetic physiology all contribute to more accelerated aging. And yeah, that's why so most Americans have got this, um, what you're calling a diabetic physiology, even if they're not, don't knowingly uh, know they have this diabetic physiology. And now it's putting them at risk of uh, early mortality, Alzheimer's, cancer, diseases of the liver, kidneys, and other organs. Yeah, absolutely. So fatty liver is an epidemic linked to diabetes. Cardiovascular disease, it's acknowledged that type 2 diabetes is one of the biggest drivers of atherosclerosis. Uh, It's massive. And we've got many cancers are linked intimately to hyperinsulinemia, which is type 2 diabetes. Uh, Obesity is intimately linked into hyperinsulinemia and the whole diabetic physiology. So to give an idea, I have a recent paper where they looked at all of the studies on humans for metabolic syndrome, and they pulled out the 50 to 70 that had insulin measured. And across a range of modern diseases, from cancers to heart disease to COPD uh, to other inflammatory conditions, all these modern chronic diseases that are so big, in 67 out of 70 cases, insulin showed up clearly as higher in the people with the disease. So the paper was entitled, I think it was the hyperinsulinemic syndrome. It's much broader than you think. That was the name of the paper. And they're essentially saying, guys, hyperinsulin is so intimately linked to all these modern diseases. We got to wake up and start measuring it and, and, and focus on this. Why are we measuring glucose then? Because what you're saying is you begin with high insulin and that's not getting measured. And then when you're half screwed is when the doctor notices your glucose is quite high. And this is when it begins to intervene. Just the way the system works. Uh, Glucose was easy to measure many decades ago. And the American Diabetes uh, Association always viewed diabetes type 2 as a glucose disease. And then as insulin assays got optimized and advanced, and we had Dr. Joseph Kraft did 15,000 people to prove this out, with multiple hour insulin assays, it became clear and the work of Yallo and, and Bernstein, I think, showed that it's actually a hyperinsulin disease. But the systems were set up and locked in place and the system wants it to be a glucose disease and simple glucose measurements to diagnose it. If you started using insulin to diagnose type 2 diabetes, the problem would be just what we said earlier you'd begin to acknowledge that two-thirds of your adult population are essentially diabetic and they ain't prepared to go there because that news is just unacceptable. The greatest cause of chronic disease and obesity today is high insulin. Particularly disease, the relationship with obesity is quite complex. You can remain insulin sensitive and become very big. It's called insulin sensitive obesity. And you actually pack calories very easily into fat cells that are insulin sensitive and you can grow them really well. Um, But also when you become insulin resistant and hyperinsulinemic, it can drive hunger very strongly and promote obesity. So there's multiple cause and effect loops 
in the obesity insulin connection that are very complex. But the best thing to say is they are intimately connected together. The best thing you can do for health and for weight control problems and appetite control problems is to get your insulin right down. And why your doctor is not measuring insulin? Well, there's political and it's maybe similar to the reasons they're not using calcification scanning. There's a general disregard and and a general working against using insulin in all the medical systems in the world. You can get into conspiracy theories. One reason is it was difficult to measure the molecule and, and basically like VHS and Betamax video formats, glucose plowed ahead, cholesterol was measured and easy to measure, plowed ahead, and insulin got left behind. And now it's very hard to get this message into a system that just views insulin as a medication. So I had a conversation with one very accomplished medical doctor. And when I explained some of the basics to him, he was confused. And I realized he knew insulin as a medication for diabetics. And he couldn't understand how I was saying it was a big causal issue. Because they just don't see insulin and measuring insulin as a causal vector in general medicine. It's only in the published research. Specialized teams realize this. It can't seemingly get into the system. Can I quote you here? Blood glucose is a very weak measure for identifying diabetes. You need to use insulin measures to properly test for this disease to check that you have uh, insulin signaling issues. Yeah, that's essentially it. And as an interview... Uh, I have free on YouTube with quite a lot of views now. Uh, if you look up Kraft Ivor, that's K-R-A-F-T, and my name Ivor in YouTube, you'll hit it. And it's Dr. Joseph Kraft, who in the 70s and 80s with 15,000 people uh, validated that the earliest laboratory test for diabetes type 2 was a post-meal insulin. It's basically been demonstrated, and he published, I think, in 1978 on this. And Chinese teams more recently have shown the same thing, that the pattern of insulin after a meal or after drinking glucose can predict future full-blown diabetes to an incredible extent. And the reason is, it is type 2 diabetes, just much earlier than when your glucose goes out of control. So if you really want to do... uh prediction and catch yourself uh, moving into higher and higher risk category you should be measuring insulin now insulin is something i measure sometimes every week sometimes every few months just uh, for the hell of it and i'm lucky to have access to i pay i think 12 euros where do you get access to measuring your insulin right well in ireland it's actually covered by the public health system once you pay 60 euros to go into a doctor you can you can to a point ask for certain tests and they'll be willing to give you them so insulin kind of you get for free along you with all the other measures to see the doctor uh, 60 well 50 to wow, 60 that's is quite common. a lot and not by american standards but european standards that's quite a lot to pay to see the doctor but you you can ask for insulin at the same time you can, and most doctors will be curious why, but if you explain why, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be fine with it. And in America, no one 
really does it. But it's only $38, I think, and he can do it mail order. In the UK, no one will do it. And I believe they will refuse an insulin test. They're almost anti. So you're saying the root cause, the primary root cause of chronic disease uh, in the UK, they're reluctant to do the test or won't let you do the test. Well, that's the way it is currently. And again, we've got to clarify that it's not that insulin just causes disease, but insulin as a measurement hyperinsulinemia has causal mechanisms into increasing your chances of disease and hyperinsulinemia also reflects other causes of disease it acts as a marker for other issues so for instance if you get very poor sleep over a period your insulin will rise if you oxidize your lipoproteins and damage your cholesterol particles it's been demonstrated that will drive up hyperinsulin. Or you consume too much alcohol, or you don't get enough salt, or you don't get enough sunlight. Exactly, to varying degrees. And I always tell people it's a two-hander. Having high insulin has many causal pathways into dyslipidemia and into disease risk. But also hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, if you measure it, can reflect many other issues. Because insulin rises in response to inflammatory and immune response. So to give an example, let's take our gut microbiome and dysbiosis. They have done human studies where they've introduced to the bloodstream lipopolysaccharide, which are bacterial elements that come from leaky gut. And by introducing lipopolysaccharide into humans, they rapidly rise their insulin and their insulin resistance. So it's important to remember that it's not just that hyperinsulin is causal, although it has many pathways. It acts as an incredibly good gauge for some other problem because it reacts to bad things by rising. So it's just a beautiful measure to an engineer. The simple measure with insulin is a HOMA, H-O-M-A, and you can Google HOMA calculator. You put in your fasting glucose, put in your fasting insulin, And it puts the two together into an even better measure than just looking at insulin or glucose alone. And the HOMA is very, very good for a quickie, cheap test. Um, Yeah, I did HOMA uh, uh, myself because, you know, it was cheap Mm. again, just fasting blood glucose. But talking of fasting blood glucose, I guess many people, when they want to check if they're pre-diabetic or even diabetic, they would go for a fasting blood glucose test. But you've made the case that, hey, it misses uh, 90% of people, at least if you were to assess them using the gold standard, which is the the, fi- the, the, craft, the five-hour craft assay. So f- fasting blood glucose, to make clear, is missing uh, the great majority of people who are pre-diabetic or diabetic. That was demonstrated in Kraft's work. And even though a lot of his people had diabetic issues, the reality was 90% were not over the glucose limit from the people who failed his proper gold standard, like you say, and around 50% who passed a glucose tolerance test, which is quite a good test. You drink glucose, you measure your blood glucose for a couple of hours, but around 50% of the people who passed those criteria were still failed based on insulin. So Kraft's point, yes, was exactly that. We could be getting huge number of people much earlier now 
his fix for people and he documented it he would put them on a low carbohydrate diet this was back in the 70s and he would see their post-meal insulin that failed his test after a couple of months he'd get them down where they passed it but he didn't want to be a diet advocate because there were too many fights about atkins and he did not want to get caught in the nutritional arguments and politics so he quietly applied low carb to fix people's insulin response. If I jump to chapter 11 in your book, um, it's called Cholesterol. <laughs> I like the title. Cholesterol is a weapon of mass distraction. Nice title, by the way, Ivor. And then you begin with a quote, which is, stupidity is the same as evil if you judge by the results by Margaret Atwood. So what do you mean by, can you introduce the concept, the cholesterol is a distraction yeah i think cholesterol and again we've got to have the caveat up front cholesterol and the various measures are risk factors they can predict a problem in the future so they're not nothing uh the problem is that the obsession with cholesterol over the past 30 or 40 years at the exclusion of insulin metabolic syndrome ferritin ggt and all of these more important markers in many ways that's where the damage has come in so there was total cholesterol decades ago was believed to be a risk factor guess what it got dropped it got dropped when it became apparent it was ambiguous misleading kind of a joke almost and then ldl the bad cholesterol was brought to the rescue and this was meant to be the super risk factor you know, the bad cholesterol. And now that's been dropped from the risk calculators. We talked about the risk calculators earlier. It's gone. They use the ratios of HDL to total and they use non-HDL. So LDL has now essentially been dropped from the risk calculators. And I have endless studies that show it's an extremely weak predictor so if it's such a weak predictor, I have to jump in and say, well, why are we prescribing drugs to the millions, namely statins based upon it? Well, the new risk calculators are not based on it. They are based on lifetime risk and overall risk. Now, I know there are many, many doctors around the world who are still just looking at an LDL or even a total and saying, oh, I, I, I think you should be on a statin. Technically, they're not meant to. They should be using the Q-risk or the ASCVD risk, and they do not use LDL directly. Um, they use ratios and non-HDL and smoking and blood pressure and all these other things. So, yeah, doctors instinctively, after many decades of this exaggeration of LDL's role, still instinctively reach for a prescription pad when they see high LDL, but they, they should not do that. They should be looking at all the risk factors and making a decision based on much more. The grandmother of my girlfriend uh, went to the doctor recently and was told she had uh, high cholesterol and she was to be to be put on a statin. And I actually turned around and said, you should actually celebrate a woman over 65 with high cholesterol. She's going to have lower all-cause mortality. Yes, this this has been seen in many studies, and it's a very embarrassing thing. Um, some arguments against all the studies that show that higher cholesterol, uh, especially in women, links with lower mortality and better health uh, when you're above around 60. 
one excuse given is reverse causality that oh well you know people who are ill it lowers their cholesterol so it creates an impression that higher is better but that's been disproven uh, in many studies one particular one was the cancer it's known that low cholesterol is a risk and low ldl for cancer which is obviously a major thing people want to avoid uh, and it was said that well subclinical cancer can lower your cholesterol and that's what's associating lower cholesterol with cancer but one guy did a study it was in the bmj and he showed that the low cholesterol link to cancer was unchanged and went back 20 years right when he looked at the data so he said this is not reverse causality the low cholesterol is genuinely and decades in advance consistently linked with more cancer so put that in your pipe and smoke it. So long story short, the higher cholesterol is much better as a risk factor in younger people. And I believe a lot of that is relating to higher cholesterol indicating issues, often ones with insulin and metabolic syndrome. If you look at high LDL in high risk groups, you go look at the other measures for the same groups, the highest quintile in risk. You're going to see high triglyceride. You're going to see low HDL. You're going to see higher glucose. You're going to see higher hypertension. In many ways, LDL is hitching a ride on much more important processes going on under the hood. So LDL is a poor, very poor independent uh, marker. Unless it's really high, in which case you need to go in and look even more carefully at all the other markers to find out what's But when you on. say high, what, what, what kind of value are you meaning? Well, the really high is over around 200 milligrams in US units for LDL alone is acknowledged to be where it can be more independently worrying. And that's around over five millimoles for LDL alone. And the director of Framingham, the famous Castelli, who is director and cardiologist expert running Framingham many years ago, he did a big paper in 92, I think. And he said, unless LDL is above 7.8 millimole, which is around nearly 300 milligrams, he said it has no independent predictive power for cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and it reminds me of you often talk of the Pareto principle, and you said that the risk ratio uh, you were you said was about one point four if LDL is over one thirty milligram, but insulin in the multivariate analysis was six point seven risk ratio. That was one particular study, but the trend you will see repeatedly if things are measured properly and analyzed properly. So that study I think was Colombian. It was looking at second heart attacks in the many years following people who had a first heart attack. Yeah, that's the and, one, Ivor. Yeah, and in that one, uh, it, LDL had a 1.4x hazard ratio in the univariate, or when you just look at these measures on their own, and it was non-statistically significant. It didn't even pass muster. Hypertension did, unsurprisingly. Only just did. It was like 1.9. I mean, it wasn't oh, yeah. 0.7. I mean, yeah, it was 1.9x, but it statistically was powerfully real. The 1.9 was statistically real, whatever about whether it was causal. But the LDL failed, 
And essentially in that paper, when they did the multivariate and they did the mathematical analysis to see, well, well, what seems to be dependent on something else and what's really independent? That's where total cholesterol dropped from 1.5 to 1 and LDL that was 1.4x. They didn't even quote what it dropped to, but it must have dropped to 1 as well. But I think they didn't want to show that because it's just too, too awkward to acknowledge. So the cholesterol fell away to nothing in significance and insulin rose to 6.7x. I went to the doctor, I didn't actually go to the doctor, I went and got blood taken and it showed high blood sugar. Fasting blood glucose was 8.9 in European uh, measurement consistently every day. I was told I was uh, close, I was diabetic and I made an appointment to see the doctor but it was two weeks away. And I hate waiting and I hate queues and I just, I, I just like to fix things myself. I didn't know anything back then. So I walked, so I just began, I was told, hey, maybe reduce carbohydrates. So I simply every day took body measurements because I could easily obtain them, walk in, and I changed what I ate. Within two months, I went from terrible blood markers to uh, normal to good and then to optimal. And I, that began to teach me that you could change it yourself by your lifestyle. So once I fixed the blood sugars, I then began to look at fats. So I began to look at lipids. So obviously I began with the standard uh, cholesterol panel. And I had, but you know, in America, people might test their cholesterol, their their lipid panel, their recommended was once every two years. <laughs> two years, but I noticed that the lipid panel is dynamic. It's changing weekly, and it's changing according to what you ate the last five days, four days, something like this. And and I had assumed that the lipid panel would be showing bad cholesterol if I ate fat, but I actually noticed the opposite, that if I ate lots of fat, my standard cholesterol panel improved, but if I ate lots of uh, carbohydrates like bread, my cholesterol panel went bad. So do you agree that the uh, the lipid lipids are dynamic? And again, why why is a doctor measuring every two years? Yeah, well, hmm, big points there. Um, so yeah, I think cholesterolcode.com is is one place we can look at all of this stuff being done by, by Dave Feldman, but that's just that's for people who are interested in these in these questions. Uh, but at a more general level, what's what's known for a long time in studies, if you fast your cholesterol LDL will go up, your particle counts will go up. And like you say, these so-called risk factors will get worse when you fast, which we know is a good thing to do. It doesn't make sense, right? But the reality is that the lipoproteins like LDL, low-density lipoprotein, they travel around the body in their trillions carrying cholesterol and triglyceride. And they have a dual purpose. One purpose the primary one is to transport triglyceride for energy purposes in VLDL, and then that gets metabolized down to IDL and LDL. So primary job is transporting fats for energy, healthy energy. And a secondary job is the lipoproteins also carry cholesterol, and that can be used if necessary in, in certain places. Okay. But the problem is, as you described, if you eat quite a lot of fats, for many days, your body switches more to fat metabolism, especially if you've been low carb in general. 
and you may have more bolts, a rising number of LDL particles as your transport of fats around the body becomes increased. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it'll look bad to the doctor. But most people, and we've got to be really careful here, people who are low-carb keto and who do some of these interventions can make their cholesterol panel appear worse when really they're healthy. But they're a minority. So the vast majority of people out there, the people who are at most risk of heart attacks, uh, those people are diseased with diabetes and other issues. And those people generally, a high particle count or small dense LDL actually reflects their insulin resistance and their problems. So yeah, I'd agree uh, for surely that if you go in with a specialized healthy diet, even if it's high in fat and low in carb, you may get bad looking markers for a different reason than the markers usually indicate something bad. And most doctors, should I say 99.999% will not know about what we're talking about. Yeah, so Ivor, if I can add on to that. So I got worried because my LDL went higher, but, you know, the HDL went higher and the triglycerides came down and the ratios, which are the most important thing you can derive from a standard cholesterol panel, all got magically uh, got into very good levels. But because LDL was so high, I still worried quite a lot. So what I did was I went for a lipoprint, uh, which is... You know, you, you tend to see this in continental Europe. It's high-resolution uh, uh, analysis. Uh, something semi-equivalent is NMR in the United States. And when I did that, I could see that it was not small, dense LDL. Yeah, and that is a great way. But the vast majority of people won't really get to access those advanced tests. But for the discussion, yes, one thing you can do for sure is the ratios from the classic panel will give you much better insights than the LDL figure alone. Triglyceride over H, uh, HDL over tr uh, triglyceride. Yeah, triglyceride divided by H2, uh, HDL. So if you're in milligrams American, being less than two in that ratio is, is called good. I'd like it down below one or 1 1.2. And um, in millimoles, it's a different measurement. So European millimoles, you want to be below one or below 0.9, ideally, or much lower. Ivor, maybe it's kind of geeky and it was a little bit expensive. But for fun, what I did was I kept taking the high resolution uh, lipids, which were getting sent off to Germany. And what I would do is I would micro change my diet. So I would add bread into my diet, just every day, some bread and very high quality bread, I might add. And I would actually see the small, dense LDL increase. Yeah, well, generally speaking, mixing refined carb and fat, I know it's high quality bread, but let's be honest, most breads, even high quality, are still mechanically refined carbohydrate, which is not ideal in general for humans. Uh, if you ate the actual wheat and, and ground your teeth through the whole grains un, untouched, you know, it would be less bad again. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, that kind of diet increases small dense LDL. Generally speaking, in the vast majority who are metabolically deranged, a higher carb mixed with fat diet will, of course, exacerbate their their 
insulin resistance and that will lead to higher particle counts and more small dense LDL and higher triglycerides. So in general, yes, that mixture of refined carb and, and fats is, is, is the least optimum mixture. But if you eat mostly healthy fats and, and low carb and certainly low refined carb, you'll tend to get the best profile. But, but it doesn't mean your LDL will be the lowest. I mean, if we consider an irony, if you eat more vegetable seed oils, which we would all agree are, are very unhealthy in the long term, because of how they function in the body, you will lower your LDL and that will look good. Uh, so the, the LDL alone measurement is just very ambiguous and a very risky one to stake uh, your life on. Before we jump ahead and speak about healthy eating, I just want to make clear that you get plenty of people who look healthy but are unhealthy. Do you want to speak briefly, briefly introduce the four classes of uh, body fat? Yeah, and this is close to my heart and to, to David Bobbitt and the IHDA. Um, we, in summary, we are most concerned really about, I'll give a, a statistic, the Top 10% of people in calcification scores account for over 40% of the heart attacks and deaths. So a major thing is to know your score, know your calcification score. The people who are high in calcification score are the massive uh, area of people at risk. Now, within that, those people, you're going to have people who are very obese, who are eating dreadful diets. You're going to have smokers. And you're going to have a whole load of people who kind of know they're doing the wrong thing. So they know they're, they're, they're heading for trouble. But what's really frustrating are the people, as you describe, who are apparently not obese, they don't smoke, but they're at just as high risk. So the four types of people are insulin sensitive, uh, normal weight, or metabolically healthy normal weight, MHNW. And these are the people you want to be. They're insulin sensitive, they've got great uh, hormonal and metabolic health, and they're not greatly overweight. Perfect. They have very low risk. The second type of person is the really problematic one. It's metabolically unhealthy, normal weight, or TOFI, thin outside, fat inside. And these people are the tragic ones. They're not greatly overweight. They don't smoke. They think they're healthy, eating their heart-healthy whole grains and heart-healthy vegetable oils, and they think they're doing fine. But guess what? They're hyperinsulinemic, insulin-resistant, and they're on fire inside. The calcification test would warn them in advance, or if you measured post-meal glucose and insulin, you'd get an insight, but their doctor's not really looking. Their doctor's looking at their LDL, and often these people have an okay LDL. So they don't get the warning. And when they die, it's a big mystery. And that group is the crucial group, hundreds of millions of people around the world that we'd be most concerned about. The third group is the metabolically unhealthy obese. Now, they're the classic people who are very obese and they are dreadfully insulin resistant. But like I mentioned a few minutes ago, they, they know they're at risk because everyone knows if you're very obese, you're probably at high risk. So at least they know. And the fourth group are very interesting, but we're not saying that it's okay to be in this group, but they are the metabolically healthy obese. 
and they are actually insulin sensitive obese. They're really obese. You can be up to 40 BMI, but they're actually insulin sensitive and they do not carry anything like the risk for disease that even the slim insulin resistant people do. So they're a very unusual subset of of obese people who their body has been able to expand their adipocytes, make more fat cells, and keep expanding, expanding, expanding the fat without breaking down and becoming insulin resistant. They They have a very high personal fat threshold. So those people I just described, they have a very high threshold. They can keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger without their insulin going out of control, right? And on the other extreme, you have people who cannot expand their fat. They have a very low personal fat threshold. They're the TOFIs or in extreme cases, people with lipodystrophy who cannot make more fat cells. And nearly all of those people are automatically diabetic. So they illustrate the other corner case. The people who cannot make fat, who are painfully skinny, they're all diabetic. Yeah, so you you really don't know looking at people. But when it comes to people and both have, say, a beer belly, you can actually visibly see the difference in the fat. Would you agree with that? It's a, it's a, it's a different type of look. Unfortunately, I'm the bad fat uh, look if I get a beer belly. I'm not sure if you're aware of what I mean. It's it's a physically different droop to yes, the stomach. Yes, I have um I have a paper actually that has photos of all the guys and it was called insulin sensitive obesity. That's the title of the paper if people want to google it. Yeah, it sounds kind of silly that you can see if it's a good fat or a bad fat when it's just two fat people with a beer belly, but it's it's got a particular type of style to it when it's bad or it's good. But you can actually measure it, like if you're in the U.S. with directlabs.com, and you measure two hormones, a serum adiponectin and yes. leptin. So you can tell which if you've got good fat Absolutely. or bad fat. Absolutely. So two things. Uh, in this study I mentioned, the photos first, yes, the insulin-sensitive obese who are relatively quite healthy, their fat hung in big folds over their belt. And it was mostly subcutaneous adipose tissue external to their muscle wall, hanging in huge reserves of floppy fat. And it was actually healthy cells. The insulin-resistant obese had a very different look. They were also really big, like 35 plus BMI, but they had a stretched pot belly. And actually, they had quite a lot of visceral fat behind their muscle wall in and around their organs. And they have a more stretched look not a big floppy but if you take someone who's only 27 or 8 bmi it'll be even harder to see that difference it's easier to see in really big people what was interesting was when i uh, was uh, diabetic i went for imaging and i had seven kilos of uh, visceral fat and within six months of being low carb keto there there was no measurable visceral fat which is it was outstanding to the person doing the imaging. He was almost jaw drop. Exactly, Lee, because they will never usually see that because the intervention for this problem, the orthodox intervention, is low-fat diets and vegetable oils, which will, pr- which will probably just hasten your demise. So they're just not used to seeing fatty liver and visceral fat depots disappearing in months. But we have countless examples of this now. It's just the orthodoxy just doesn't know what to say. 
I have a relation who is diagnosed with fatty liver. I told them in the next month before you go back to the doctor, do this. And of course, it was a healthy, high healthy fat, very low carb diet, cut out all the fruits and all the other stuff, do an extreme intervention for a month just to shock the doctor. And he went back in and the doctor was completely confused looking at the latest bloods. He just could not understand. Yeah, you, I, I saw the professor who was doing the imaging thinking that the assistant hadn't set the, the imaging machine up correctly. Yeah, and that, that's that, that's what you're going to see. It must be the machine. But the the big thing is the revolution that's coming. Because with the internet and this knowledge that we're speaking about and Verta Health and the work of Professor Volokh and Finney and countless other leaders in the new science we're going to begin to see scans like that popping up all over the place. And that's going to convert the medical orthodoxy. My personal opinion is we're going to see a new healthcare emerge, which is why I started this podcast, because there's there's other uh, there's other pressures and other factors and other technologies coming into play. So I actually think today's healthcare will be left for the sick and injured and we'll have a new healthcare for prediction, prevention and optimization. Just as uh, prevention and, and prediction isn't very good today, do you agree that government nutritional guidelines have been based upon junk science and have only exacerbated chronic disease and obesity? Broadly speaking, yes, one would have to agree with that because they were heavily based for decades on essentially refined carbohydrate starches, which we know are not a good idea at all. So, and the vegetable oils, I think the science is now beginning to burgeon and explode around how seed oils and omega-6 and linoleic acid oils are not ideal in the long term for health and have led to many unintended consequences, even though in trials, they look good on paper in short-term trials because they nudged cholesterol around. So I'd say, yeah, the guidelines are going to have to change to lower carb high healthy fat or at least take out all the ultra refined processed foods and breads unfortunately i think in the food pyramid are essentially an ultra refined processed food so the food pyramid is upside down you know it should be more oils at the bottom and breads at the top and cereals at the top i use sparingly if, if at largely all. speaking yes the only thing is i wouldn't so much put oils at the bottom so much i'd prefer to get my healthy fats from real whole foods and i wouldn't particularly use a lot of oils because a lot of them are processed anyway and it's very easy to take a lot of energy density from oils whereas i'd rather get them from fatty fish fatty grass-fed beef I'd rather get all my healthy fats from eggs. Well, it's a, you're in alignment with myself. I did go through phases of drinking oils, but then I was checking bloods and how I felt, and I've curbed it, it back again. So to dispel a myth, eating fat doesn't make you fat. It's carbohydrates that make you fat. Many things will make you fat, and I would say carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates are a big part of the problem. Uh, but I just think it's maybe an oversimplification to just say it's carbs that make you fat. Carbohydrates, especially as they're more refined and especially mixed with fatty foods, are a very pro-obesogenic factor. Um, if, as is the case now in our population, we have hyperinsulinemic hordes 
or basically majority with essential diabetes. For weight loss, it's a disaster to keep eating carbs, refined carbs mixed with fats in the diet for our population. We need to go back to much lower carb to begin to pull back from the precipice. Yeah, I think if you're going to go into eating fat, you're either should go 65% and above or 10% and lower and nothing in between. So when you see people eating a burger and washing it down with a beer, that's uh, it's definitely not helping longevity. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of evidence for that. And we've gone through it in the book. There is a place you can go with very low fat and relatively high unprocessed carb. And we've got the work of many doctors, mainly vegetarian, who have had quite good results with a ultra very low fat. And there is a scientific set of processes where if you go really low fat with high carb, you can achieve an insulin sensitivity with quite a bit of care. The reason we go low carb, high healthy fat is it's a much more delicious, rewarding, ancestrally appropriate diet that is much more easy to adhere to and brings other advantages. So the low-carb healthy fat is really an engineering practical solution to our current population issue. Okay, and when you say um, vegetable oils, just to be clear, you're you're not meaning olive oil. You're meaning, uh, Americans would call it canola oil. Uh, we uh, we call it rapeseed oil. I say we because I'm kind of culturally confused now, nowadays. So um I forget what the British name is. Is it rapeseed oil? What's that yellow stuff in the big containers that all the restaurants are using that's poisoning us and many people are using at home? The yellow stuff, the restaurants, that'd be urine, would it? <laughs> no, I'm... No, I don't think it's urine, but they not only use oil that's killing us in the cooking, which is one reason I don't eat out often, and it's the vegetable oil you speak of. I'm sure Americans call it canola oil, which is a slightly different, but we call it rapeseed oil or vegetable oil or... Right. Well, yeah, no, I would say the vegetable oils or seed oils, they're not actually from vegetables. They're crushed at high temperature and pressure and often with solvents out of seeds. Um, Canola is one and it was a seed developed to be higher in omega-3 type fat rather than too much omega-6 because they've known for decades the omega-6 is a problem. So they're breeding canola and rapeseed to be higher in the better fats. But the reality is vegetable oils can be sunflower, soy oil. All of these seed oils are vegetable oils. And um, canola is just one particular type that they're trying to make a little less bad. They are in very stark contrast to olive oil because olive oil is mostly monounsaturated oil and it's crushed from real food. And coconut oil is crushed from real food. The 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 kind of coconut oil and olive oils are, are all real food oils and they are not high omega-6 industrially processed extracted from seed oils. So there is a big distinction. It was great to make that. Thank you, Ivor. I realize we're vastly running out of time here. Let me hit you with four questions. You decide how long you want to spend on them. You said that the cellular structure of food is what matters. And as soon as you mechanically grind food, that's when you run into issues. There is something at the cellular level. You can't just uh, get food and mechanically grind it and then throw fiber in at the end and, and fix it again, right? 
Yes. So essentially, this has been proven out in many, many studies, human and Petri dish and elsewhere. So in a nutshell, if you mechanically process and grind up carbohydrate starches, you make them more available to the gut and a hormone called GIP reacts more strongly. So grinding fats or protein doesn't make much difference, but plant food carbohydrates, it does. So that's essentially it. And if you put back in fiber into products where you've ground them and taken out the fiber and destroyed their structure, they'll cause a much higher insulin response. They'll cause much higher hormonal reactions, which in the long term are, are very negative. And putting back in fiber might mitigate the problem a little, but it doesn't really get them back to unprocessed whole carbohydrate foods. So that's one of the big problems, I think, in the last 50 years is, is that alone. Okay, three questions left. What you're saying, if we sum everything up today as a practical uh, what to do or what not to do, is what you're saying is avoid 90% of the supermarket. The supermarket is a place to go to get sickness. Avoid all the, avoid all the middle aisles and only eat around the perimeter is pretty much a summary of what, you, of what you're saying. Yeah, I think that'd be a fair summary that, you know, processed foods, which fill 80% of the supermarket, uh, be very careful which ones you you indulge in a lot. Uh, there are some processed foods, which are like ready meals, where they're mostly real food components with some flavorings in a tray, but you'll find they don't keep so long. But all the sauces, the powdered soups, and all the cereals, I mean, of course, and all of the food is generally high in mechanically ground carbohydrate and high in vegetable oils. And they're two big bad actors. If you go around the outside and you eat just vegetables and above ground leafy vegetables and peppers, of course, the, the grass fed meats, the fatty fish, the eggs, avocados, and I could go on and on. They're all real foods. And unless you're already diabetic with a broken machine, in which case you need to be particularly careful, even amongst some real foods, generally speaking, the real foods will not cause much of a problem for you. Yeah. So to be clear, the biggest cause of disease is our food choices, or at least chronic disease. I would have loved to today to have spoken about many subdrivers of <laughs> disease like UV light, D3, magnesium and so on, but we can't do that today. So I only have one last question, which ties on to the last. I, I was reading a paper called How the Mid-Victorians Worked, Ate and Died. And, you know, uh, Mid-Victorians is defined as 1850 to 1870. And I'll quote this. With the exception of family planning and antibiotics, the vast edifice of 20th century healthcare has generated little more than tools to suppress symptoms of the degenerative diseases which have emerged due to the failure to maintain mid-Victorian nutrition standards. So the last question is, essentially, do you think we should just eat like 1860? Essentially, yes. Um, 1860, well, a lot of people didn't have access to good nutrition. Uh, but generally speaking, it was pre-sugars, pre-refined carbohydrates, certainly pre-vegetable oils. So if you take those as three of the baddest actors, back in the 1850s, once you had access to, to, to plenty of food, 
you know, with, with nutrition like meats and, and whatever, generally speaking, yes, the diseases of modernity exploded in the 20th century. And they did so primarily because of the changing food supply. Not exclusively, of course, but but that's a really big Pareto item. I can't help but throw this in real brief. Public health got it wrong on cholesterol. They got it wrong on fats. They got it wrong on salt. They did get it right on smoking. If you tossed a coin on these items, you would have had more chance of getting it correct. The new foods that were high profit center, high revenue, and practical to feed the world all the new foods that were most economical, most profitable, when they turned out to be a problem, they had to be defended. I think every, every little driver with everyone who is influential from industry, business and researchers who'd fallen for the cholesterol heart hypothesis, it just turned out in the 50s, 60s and 70s that everyone ended up with a career or a commercial interest in defending modern foods and some of the modern theories so it became self-fulfilling that we'd always tend to get it wrong and that's just human nature and industry and just many other group think and, and and all this kind of stuff i don't think it's a major conspiracy but i think industry certainly dropped a lot of money into keeping the paradigms as they were and they still are <laughs> to this day. Well, Ivor, I highly appreciate your time. I do apologize for overrunning because you did tell me you have a hard stop. And I super hope to get you on again in the future because there's just vast amounts we didn't cover that I think is essential. Oh, absolutely. We'll come back again, Lee. And I'd probably just finish on again uh, because I work on behalf of IHDA. Just for people to keep in mind, the top 10% of calcium scores have more than 40% of the heart attacks and death. And those people need to really, really focus on their diet and all the fixes we were talking about there. But where can people get CAC scores? If you Google Widowmaker CAC, that's two words, uh, you'll get to watch the Widowmaker movie, which explains all of this. And my name Googled or searched in YouTube. I have many lectures and interviews on this whole area. But generally speaking, you you require uh, inquire in local hospitals or scanning centers and ask about the CAC score from the CT scan of the heart, and you have to shop around. I know in New York you might get, I think, $100, but what about in Europe? Europe, generally more expensive for sure, but it will vary greatly. I think you just got to go and ring around. Okay, well, hopefully we can find some links on them over time. I wish you a successful day, Ivor, and I greatly appreciate you giving up so much of your day. Oh, thanks a lot, Lee. Best of luck. Thank you. Take care. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.